we go to Wellington now to uh, Colin Peacock from Midweek Media Watch. Hi, Colin. Hi, Karen. Let's start with the very sad story of the crash near Picton on Sunday. Yes, in, in a way, when something this bad happens, you know, the media coverage obviously just isn't that important. Um, and maybe this isn't a particularly profound thing to say, but it feels like when there's a story like this, a fairly familiar sort of process unfolds. At first, you hear the breaking news about a serious crash. Then later, you hear multiple uh, fatalities and you start thinking, oh, this is going to be a story we'll hear about for quite a while and there'll be sad stories about communities devastated and so on when it's uh, multiple fatalities involved. Uh, then you get you know, police sort of somberly warning us not to jump to conclusions about it and wait till it's all investigated and so on. Um, but you know, some people did contact Media Watch this weekend objecting to some of the language used in reports, things like horror smash in headlines and things like that. And other people <laughs> curiously objected to the more bland language, just the use of the word accident, you know, making the point that, look, you know, we tolerate a 300 plus road deaths a year. And, you know, honestly, it's not accident. It's, you know, it's part of a, a thing that we tolerate. Now, to me, it feels a bit like, you know, nitpicking and just a detail when tragedy strikes. You know, do we really want to quibble about the vocab the media uses? But, you know, possibly it is kind of an argument whose time has come. Uh, there were also complaints about the images of the accident site being you know, overused, you know, overexposed. Yeah, and that often happens when something like this um, breaks. Uh, some people got in touch with Media Watch about the New Zealand Herald website. They used the headline, um, Images Reveal True Horror of Smash That Killed Seven. And there was a video embedded in that which had the words absolute carnage right on the first frame, although that was a quote from the police officers at the scene. Um, and a relative of one of the victims actually complained on social media about that Herald story. And I had a look through it. And true enough, there were a lot of images used as you went down, a lot of images of the wreckage in the roadside and so on. Um, so I think in my sense, the, this is something that happened in a public place. It's on a highway. It's a huge story people are going to hear about. Totally legitimate to describe it, to react to it a little, and to show images of it. But I suppose this is a case, I think, where less is more. You can use a couple of images which show immediately how serious it is. And beyond that, I think, you know, we've got enough imagination to work out, you know, just what a serious accident, um, you know, like this um, like this looks like, uh, you know. But, but then again, it's difficult, particularly for television news. They kind of have to show it, and it is a legitimate story of legitimate public interest, and uh, sometimes I feel for them. But as long as they're not gratuitous, they're not showing close-ups and personal identifying information, that sort of thing, you know, I think it's okay. Well, Colin, in cases like these, shock gives way to anger and, and the search for someone to blame. So was that the case this time? Perhaps not so much someone to blame, uh, although people did want to know why, why, why here, um, because it's you know such a well-known and well-used stretch of road. And reporters dealt with that fairly responsibly, I thought. But when it came to the commentary, say the following day on Monday, um, Waka Kotahi copped a lot of criticism, uh, particularly on one network, um, News Talk ZB. So, for example, if you were listening in Wellington uh, on Monday morning, you would have heard uh, the host Nick Mills say this. Waka Kotahi, stop spending our money on openings. Stop spending our money on PR and make our roads as God-givenly possibly safe. That's what I want to see out of Waka Kotahi. 
Mm, so Wellington ZB listeners heard that. And just before that, Mike Hosking on the ZB Breakfast Show had interviewed Greg Murphy, former racing driver, road safety advocate. He said Waka Kote's ad campaigns that Nick Mills also talked about were no good, not having any effect. And then the Christchurch listeners of ZB were hearing uh, John McDonald shortly after saying this. How likely do you think it is today that the people at Waka Kotahi are at work thinking twice about those stupid road safety ads they've been pouring money into. Do you think any of them have arrived at the office today after that absolutely horrific road smash on State Highway 1 yesterday and sent around an email saying, hey, let's get together later today and think about how we can do this better. The ads might not be hitting the mark. No, that won't be happening today. Gosh, he sounds like Mike Hosking, doesn't he? But has he got a point? I mean, money spent on ad campaigns could be spent improving the safety aspect of our roads, although the numbers don't really add up. Well, yeah, that's true. But these are huge campaigns, completely legitimate to question whether those ad campaigns are effective, are hitting the mark. Uh, but, you know, two, two things about this. Waikakote has been running those ads for about a quarter of a century, um, on focusing on things like speed, drink driving, drug driving, uh, distraction, all, all sorts. You know, so how do these commentators, you know, who quite blithely dismissed the ads as useless and a waste of money that could be spent on barriers and things like that, how, how do they know the road toll wouldn't actually be worse if that messaging wasn't out there. Um, so I'm going to have a look at this on the programme on Sunday for Media Watch, but already just having a look around, there's a bit of literature and academic study on this, you know, going back 20 years or so. It's mixed results, but some of them do actually credit. Um, even going back 20 years, a big Australian study did actually credit uh, the ads with having an effect reducing fatalities. Uh, they say statistically they think the results show that, particularly among certain groups of younger uh female drivers and male drivers. So, you know, interesting. So, you know, there's all sorts of factors come into this, you know, the road toll, which is a lot lower now than it used to be. And ads is one of those. There's, you know, new legislation, there's better cars, safer road improvements, all of that stuff. And I think the contrast to those quite, what seemed to me like hitting Waka Kotahi and road safety ads as a soft target um, was Phil Pennington's reporting for RNZ. So on Monday and again, um, in fact, sorry, Tuesday and again today, he had work based not just on responding to a horrible accident, but digging deeper about dysfunction at Waka Kotahi for the safety team not being well coordinated and being reviewed now. And today he reported on younger drivers uh, not being picked up as much as in the past for um, driving uh, restricted licences, carrying passengers and things like that, which is high risk, and almost none of them being prosecuted or followed up on. That's all part of the fact of the deterrence and enforcement. So, yeah, it's a much, much bigger deal than whether the road safety ads are effective or not. Well, Colin, uh, last week uh, Brian spoke to Hayden on Midweek Media Watch about the Patrick Gower on Booze doco that had just aired, but it's had an impact since then? Yeah, it has, because they did a follow-up programme which screened just before uh, they spoke last weekend, so they didn't really have a chance to, to get into that, but uh, it was a full hour and a half on TV3. But yeah, last week Hayden and Brian talked about the documentary, and it had a pretty fundamental flaw that other critics picked up on, which is where you get 
media personalities sharing their story in a, in a factual program like this, you know, the, the presence of the, it's a paradox really because the presence and, and, and the candor of a personality boots the reach and the impact of the program uh, when it's on a, you know, significant social issue. But inevitably the focus becomes very much on that individual, their story in this case, you know, Paddy Gower admitting to a drink problem that he couldn't quite control the way he wanted to and, you know, the bigger issues um, – kind of get left in the background. Uh, for example, you know, News Hub picked out a story, made a story out of, you know, the low point of Patrick Gower's career being that he once missed an on-air interview after being out too late drinking whiskey with Winston Peters. You know, okay, it's professionally bad, but that's not really the low point for someone with an alcohol problem. And it was a bit like when Guy Nespiner did his one uh, last year called Proof. You know, he shared an anecdote about being drunk and hung over in front of Helen Clark in Antarctica, which was embarrassing, but he didn't talk about, you know, this really difficult stuff, which might be, you know, with you yelling at your kids or something, the other things that, that could that could happen if you had a drink problem that, that you weren't controlling, you know. So three, uh, the TV channel, I think, acknowledged this. So they scheduled a, a 90-minute live panel discussion to talk about the issues with a whole lot of people that weren't Patrick Gower. And Mark Jennings, the former TV3 News boss, wrote about this, said, look, this is a really rare event to have a serious panel discussion in prime time. And he said, if this panel inspires some new ideas and, and rates well, then it could be a, an awakening for current affairs in New Zealand TV. So we'll see. But it was definitely a good effort and, and a good thing for TV3 to have done. Was it effective? Well, I think mostly, yeah. It started off a bit with more Patrick Gower and more of his confessional stuff and replaying some of that uh, embarrassing footage where he you know, he forced to confront what he looked like after he'd had a few drinks. But then it moved on. And uh, as stuff uh, reviewer Amber Jack uh, pointed out, um, you know, he took a, what she described as a much-needed back seat um, and uh, said the, the – but she, she still had a, an issue with it saying there was – more emphasis on the social costs of alcohol, the health issues and how to find help. But she said it wasn't enough. Um, the focus was still largely on the binge drinker at the expense of the long-term um, everyday drinker. But one issue it did tackle was availability of booze, um, you know, which does get discussed a bit um, in the news when it flares up alcohol licensing and so on. And some of that input was a little... I don't know if self-absorbed is the right term, but here, um, I'm sorry to pick on her, maybe it's a bit unfair, but here is a comment made on the programme by radio host and podcaster Brody Kane. It's so cheap too at the supermarket. Like, a bottle of champers, you know, like, is 50 bucks, which is, ex- it is expensive, but it's not. It's The supermarkets are now cheaper than duty-free. She's obviously on a good wicket. Fifty bucks for a bottle of booze is not cheap for most people. No, no, I think so. And, and nor if you're getting it duty free, you know, it's, it's, you clearly aren't probably aren't too worried about the price at the supermarket anyway. But look, the, you know, the, the point was that you know it's, it was a bit reflective of the people who were on it uh, and the, the pre, their preoccupations. But I did actually listen because. Brody Kane used to have a podcast, I think it was called Girls Uninterrupted, where her and some colleagues talk pretty frankly about their own socialising and, and drinking habits. And um, she doesn't seem to do that one anymore, but she has a company that has a new one called Three Gals, One Beehive, and she's not on it, but she produces it. And they did a good podcast responding to what was in that program, talking about the issues really well and you know, saying that you know we tend to focus on uh, in the news, alcohol is a problem with young people and then and alcoholics, you know, but actually it's to do with a nationwide habit and people that might be high functioning or not 
uh, coping or not and the effect of it. So they thought about it quite. So to be fair to, to Brodie Kane, yeah, there's a, a piece of really good content sparked by that um, that uh, TV3 discussion. Um, but there was also a very different perspective on that uh, that three debate in the News Hub program. They had Dave Latelli, uh, also known as you know Butterbean, former gang member turned health and fitness advocate, community worker in South Auckland. And he spoke a lot about the mushrooming of outlets in South Auckland, the feeling that poorer communities were kind of being preyed upon when it came to availability. He said um, afterwards on his own radio show, which is on Today FM, which is really interesting. I recommend people tune into it because it's got a lot of voices you don't hear elsewhere. He said if you go to a bottle store in Remuera, you know, there's tastings and crackers. It's, you know, it could be like an event. But he said you go to one where I live and it's almost like you know, visiting a prison. With you know shutters and security and all that, <laughs> and uh, this was how he summed up his feelings. This is on his own Butterbean radio show on 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 uh, Today FM. This is how he summed up his feelings about the uh, the TV debate that he'd taken part in. They just didn't want to dig deep. Mm. You know, talking about a guy and and look at a lot of the. It was fun for a lot of people talking about, you know, alcohol stories about shitting their crap in their pants and stuff like that. Sorry about my language. You know, but I'm talking about people that are going home and beating up their partners, mm. you know, due to alcohol. Yeah, fair criticism. Yeah, possibly. I mean, that, that uh, to be clear, that, that reference to uh, soiling yourself, there was an anecdote told by uh, Matt Chisholm, a reporter uh, formerly with Fair Go and other news programs who's kind of in recovery and has talked a lot about that. He was very frank in the way that Patrick Gower had been as well. But Dave's point was, you know, the wider social lens on all this, not just, you know, the personal stories is, is what you need to have. But look, what what three did there and Discovery and News Hub and putting that on, it was a 90-minute show. It would have taken a big effort, getting a lot of guests into the studio like Mark Jennings says doesn't often happen uh, and you know you don't often see experts uh, you know um, um, other than on those Sunday morning politics shows given a bit of free reign to talk about an issue um, so I think yeah, a good effort by them and the sort of thing we don't have that often and definitely you know kudos for them to making the effort and not just sticking with you know Patrick Gower and, and my struggle and taking it beyond that. Well, the Patrick Gower booze show is not the only show on three that's intervening, if that's the right word, in our health. Yes, yeah, season two of Match Fit uh, is on right now. In fact, uh, the th- I think the third episode of season two, series two, was on earlier tonight on three, but I, I didn't get a chance to see it. Um, and incidentally, they've also got their sort of hoarding show, um, Sort Your Life Out, that was on before it. So maybe they really are trying to get us to um, uh, get our act together <laughs> on, the, on three these days. But That's the, if you're a hoarder. Yeah, yeah, true enough. Or, or indeed if you're um, not as unfit as a, a sort of all black in your 40s who's gone true. to seed because that's what match fits all about. So former all black coach Graham Henry and former captain Buck Shelford get a bunch of old all blacks together who have got out of shape a little bit uh, and try to get them uh, fitter and healthier. Um, and some of them are, you know, seriously out of shape. And this is the sad thing about this one, because one of those who joins the series was um, Vanga Tuagamala. Um, he joined the program last year, but he died uh, in late February, aged 51, um, you know, after the, this current series had been filmed. Oh, that's terrible. So how did they handle that? Well, really interestingly, like head on. So episode one was a tribute to him and it was quite affecting TV because um, he threw himself into the series because he himself um, has been a health advocate for his community. He recognises that he got into very bad shape himself uh, and he's uh, the main person in a a diabetes intervention programme called, um, I think it's called ODICE and um, 
that was the reason that almost unwillingly, uh, in fact, his former teammate Eroni Clark, who's part of one of the Matchfit crew, going through the, their paces for the show, at the start of episode one, he said uh, to camera um, that Rangintungamala was initially really reluctant uh, to be on the show, but this is why he decided to take part. Um, but after realising that the work that he was doing now in the Pacific Health space was important in terms of being a role model, he realised that he needed to do something about his own health, which is why Matchfit was so important to him. So we farewell you, brother. Yamanwialomalanga uso pele soifua. Very hard to watch him struggle with this fitness training, knowing that he would die soon after. Well, it is, but I mean, the thing is, having seen that, if you saw that intro, and Graham Henry also spoke quite emotionally about it, uh, you know, you don't feel that bad. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I heard um, David Latelle on his Butterbean radio show, you know, him being a guy who has also done outreach about trying to get um, people in his community healthier and, and, and fitter. Um, they focused on this a bit on last Sunday's show, and they had as a guest the fitness trainer for the MatchFit series, a guy called Alex Flint, and they started talking about this, and he mentioned that he talked to Vangatungamala's wife, Daphne, um, about this, and because I wondered how they would feel about seeing, you know, he only died in February, and here he is on primetime telly, you know, struggling with his, with his fitness, and uh, they said that, and I guess we'll see this hopefully as the series goes on, but um, that his health improved an awful lot, and in fact, Dave Latelli talked about seeing him at the gym where they do a lot of their classes for his fitness programs and he was cycling quite long distances to and from and you know when you see the early episodes of match fit that clearly wasn't something he could have done so uh, clearly it did have an impact on him that, that was good so yeah once you know all that it's um it's not quite so hard to watch him struggle through the fitness in the show and they're trying to reach people at risk of diabetes and obesity but you know that, that confrontational direct approach doesn't always work yeah, well, that's the thing about the series, because when they're all in it together, supporting each other, um, it's it's really nice. In fact, on that Butterbean radio show, one of the guests they had talking about it was Charles Reichelman, a former All Black and Auckland rugby player, uh, who I think also takes part later in this Match Fit series. And he talked about the kind of brutal hierarchy there used to be um, back in the old days of the Blues. And, you know, he got clapped around the head for putting his bag on Sean Fitzpatrick's seat on the team bus and all of that. But the vibe of match fit is very different, and it is all about a bunch of blokes supporting each other, recognising the problems. You actually learn quite a bit about blood pressure and cholesterol and um, metabolic age and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's a good show, and I do recommend it. And also, on Dave Latelli's Butterbean radio show on Today FM, they talked about other social problems in the same way, and uh, they had Papakura High School kids in who'd won a, a competition to create a video poem for the Women's Rugby World Cup and so on. They talked about that school has real problems, and David Latelli mentioned that. It's had been run by administrators for a long time, focus of a Herald documentary about um, you know its problems and underprivilege and so on, and they talked a lot with the kids and the teachers about how they turn things around working cooperatively. So, yeah, a radio show that's not like any other that I've heard, and I do recommend it. 
We've got about a minute left, Colin, and they're calling it the mystery of the times. What happened to a sensational scoop about Boris Johnson? It appeared in some editions of the Times on Saturday in the UK, and then it disappeared? Yep. I think this is what they call the, you know, the Streisand effect, you know, drawing attention to something and making it worse. In, in full effect, this was a story about uh, Boris Johnson when he was the Foreign Secretary about four years ago. He tried to appoint his mistress at the time, who's now his wife, Carrie Simmons, as his chief of staff with a salary of about 100 thousand pounds so says the story by uh, serious veteran reporter Simon Walters the Times published it in early editions then dropped it the Daily Mail apparently published it as well on their website then dropped it neither publication has explained why it emerges later uh, Downing Street did complain about it but the New York Times went and read an old book by a Tory peer, Lord Ashcroft, who had most of these claims in an old book that he'd written anyway. So <laughs> why the hell the story appeared in the first place and then was withdrawn, uh, don't think anyone comes out of it very well. <laughs> the mystery of the Times. Colin, thank you very much. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. Sure thing. Look forward to it. Colin Peacock with Midweek Media Watch.